Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 469. Sadly, we continue a special Israel at War edition. This program is dedicated by Yecheskel, good friend, in memory of David ben Yecheskel Halevi and Chaim Yisrael ben Yosef Halevi. I say sadly because we're now in the fourth week from Simchas Teda, October 7th, with that horrible, brutal massacre over, of over 400 of our dearest brothers and sisters. Innocent people, men, women, and children were so killed in the worst possible fashion. And ever since, we are uh, actively, Israel is actively doing whatever it can to defend and protect its innocent citizens. And we all over the world, the Jewish people, stand as one, united in total unity, and we continue this battle, both begeshem Ubaruach, physically and spiritually, each one in our part standing on the front lines. We are each soldiers with a role to play. This is not a time to be a bystander, an observer, a, uh, a, uh, a spectator, but rather to be involved in every possible way. So we do see the outpouring of tremendous love and a tremendous unity and a tremendous simcha even. So touching to see. Sadly, why is it that tragedy has to bring out this type of uh, connection we have? It's a discussion for another time. But bottom line is, we shall prevail. Am Yisrael Chai. We've been here for 3,800 years and we continue to be here. We have outlasted all our enemies. And as long as we keep clear our moral clarity and our vision of what we want to achieve in this world, it's not just to defeat our enemies, it's to bring godliness and goodness and life and light to all people of the world, all people, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, whoever it is, that's our ultimate mission. But sadly, we live in a world where God made it, where there is darkness and there are challenges and there are people who choose not the path of life and we have to do whatever we can to protect ourselves in this process, in this uh, journey, with the ultimate goal, with the total hope that this will soon be over, not just these battles, but all battles, and we will march into the Gula, Mitis Vashlema, where there will be no evil, no more destruction. Because the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover, cover the sea, as Ram, the Rambam, that's from the book of Yeshaya, as the Rambam concludes his Sefer Halachis, Mishneh Teriyad HaChazakeh, that lo yisham leirav v'leimolchama, there will no longer be famine, no war, because the whole world's business will be to know God, each in their own way. And Beisi Zu, Kola Amim, all the nations of the world will come to Beis Amikdash, Beisi Zu, Beis Tfila Kola Amim, this house will be a house of prayer for all people. Az epech el Amim Safa Brura, love the Kulam Shechem Echad. All the nations will be transformed to all serve one God, each in their in their own unique way. So there's so many questions that have been coming in that each of us have that we collectively have. I've been trying to address some of them the previous weeks. I will continue to do so. This is exactly what Torah Chsidis. If not now, when? This is what it comes to do. Chassidus applied, applied to the challenges of our time. 
both on a physical level, on a spiritual level, on a psychological level, on an emotional level. The fears people have, the unknowns, what do we tell our children, and all of that. So let's continue this. So this program I divided into a few, few categories, as I've done in the past. I'll just lay them out, try to cover as much as I can in each one of them, and hopefully next week we can just talk about good things, but we'll continue this conversation, this discussion, and of course, more than welcome. I thank you for all your questions, because this makes us stronger when we communicate with each other. You all know we're part of it, and I feel honored to be able to be part by bringing some clarity and some guidance, some direction from Taylor, from Chassidus, and especially from the Rebbe, who dealt with similar situations in the past, the Kippur War, different terrorist attacks, the Intifadas, the Six-Day War, etc. And hopefully we can all do, glean from that strength, confidence, hope, and connection to Hashem that gives us the power to de- deal with and face, confront any challenge and any adversity. So the structure I'm going to do is some begin with strength and direction. Then we'll talk about empowering Torah portions, how these times, everything is Hashgach pratis, everything is meant to be. That these, po- these portions, and especially when it all began, Simchus Teda, they tra- teach us tremendous lessons and empower us. Talk about the end story. You know, where is this going? What does victory consist of? What action should we be taking? The action section. Who owns the land of Israel? And then how to deal with, uh, how to respond to sympathizer, sympathizers of our enemy and other questions that have come in in, the, in this general structure. So <clears throat> let's begin with strength and direction, how to find strength and direction in these challenging times. So the way Yidin have always found strength and guidance and clarity is through God, through the Tehidah. We know that we live in a world where all the paths are filled with danger, especially in a time like this. So where do we, how do we counter that? By the strength that we get. And you see it in every portion of the Tehidah, starting from Breshis and Noyach and Lechlecha, and we'll spell out some of that soon more detail. But especially as we read about as Avram Avinu, Pasha Lechlecha, then in Vayera, then in Chayisa, and then Vayetze, Vayakov, and before that Yitzchok, that whenever they voiced any concerns, they turned to God and entered a being that they received their amuna and betach and strength from above, which in simple English means spiritual strength, the strength of resilience. That kasheyana esam ken yifritz, as it says by Mitzrayim, that the more they were afflicted, the more they thrived and flourished. That's not just because of the pressure, but because there's a deeper connection, deeper strength come out. So when we connect to the immutable in, in, in the, into the immutable God that's un, no, never changing, and we draw strength from there, Bnei Yisrael will never be eliminated. God forbid. We attach ourselves to Hashem Alekechem Chaim Kulchem, to Chaim, and that makes us live. You connect to the source of life, eternal life you gain that eternal life within you. This has been our secret from the beginning of time. So we do all our part, we use our ingenuity, we use our intelligence, we use our power, we use military if need be, we prepare for war. But we always know it's but it's the Ebrishter's Keich. 
not our power, God's power that ch- channeled through us. And that gives us the ability to rise above and not be defined and not be, de- and not be limited by the battles on the ground. We go out to battle outside of ourselves because it doesn't reflect our essence. It doesn't define us. You have to do the battle, but it's outside of you. And it's always not not with our enemies, above our enemies. Because when you go with that attitude, you're always above the enemy. Sadly, sometimes we need to fight. And unfortunately, there can be casualties, as we've seen. But the ultimate is we know we're not defined by it. We can look at the, into the abyss. We can look into the eye of the enemy, do what we have to do. But we're not defined by it. We're defined by the, our neshamas, our souls. We are God's ambassadors in this world to bring godliness but part of it is Adida B'Tachtenim, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, chapter 36. Tachtenim means a dark world, a very dark world. Quadruply dark world. Filled with shells and filled with coverings and concealments and advers- advers- adversity and adversaries of all sorts physical, emotional, psychological, the fears, the, all, everything that comes with it, to the point that it's a world that yells out, Aniva Afsiyed, me and nothing else, ego, self. And godliness is completely concealed. And yet, we are sent into this world with the power, because we're not given any challenge we cannot overcome, with the power to overcome this darkness, not just to overcome it, but transform, to transform the dark world into a world of light. To a home for God. In tachtenim, tachtenim means the lowest. And where do you see it most in times like this? In peaceful times, you don't always notice the tachtenim, even though it's there. And the tug and the power and the seduction of materialism is always challenging us and tempting us. But when you see this, you see, first of all, the deaths and the horrible sort of deaths and all the unknowns and challenges, the tachtenim is very loud and clear. But we will create this dirabit tachtenim. Some of it requires the surmerah, eliminating and getting rid of ba'arta ramakir bacha, annihilating, eradicating the evil within us and among us. But we come with a higher power. We know that light is always stronger than darkness. So ultimately what drives us is our love for life, our love for God, our love for light, for godliness. And that's more powerful than their love for the opposite of godliness. That's where we get our strength and direction. That's where we get our security from. Not with chayel, with armies, and not with power, but with spirit including armies and power. But it's infused with spirit, the ruchi, the spirit of God. And therefore, our teyuda and our mitzvahs are hand in hand, together with our ammunition and artillery. Because it's the spirit that keeps it going, the spirit of the individual. And we all know a battle, an army can fight all the wars and have all the weapons and have the most powerful firepower and ammunition. And, and everything, be superior, but if they don't have the morale, the spiritual morale, the psychological confidence, they will not win. And that's the critical component here. Knowing that we're in the right, we're fighting for the right thing. 
We're not fighting to hurt anyone. We're not fighting to grab anything. We're fighting in defense of our, to protect our innocent. And we're fighting for the values that humanity stands for, the values that God told us to bring into this world. Okay, so part of all of that is what we'll talk about, the actions we need to do. It's very clear that what, what that means. We need to connect ourselves to this eternity, to Hashem, to the betochen Hashem. Because God is with us. And so many other psukim that capture that uh, feeling, that sentiment. Okay, so somebody asks a question. So what are the treasures and secret weapons that can help us win today's war? And the context of that is, is it's taught that when a king needs to win a war, this is in Basiligani, Tavshin Yud, Friedrich Rebbe's last maimah that was, that was uh, distributed, that was pu- published before the Istalkos. It says, it's taught that when a king needs to win a war, he opens his warehouses of treasures and spares no expense to win. Bizbuza Eitzis. What is our hidden treasures and secret weapons, secret weapons today to win this current war? And how do we access it and use it properly to win? So the secret weapon, firstly, the Eitzer, as he explains in that, in those memorandums, the Eitzer of Yerushalayim, connection to God. That's our biggest secret weapon. What God means also the Torah mitzvahs that God gave us, to hold on to them, to hold on to it with our, all our strength and march with that, and know that we're coming as a nation. As I said, 3,800-year-old nation. Martin Tata was over 3,300 years ago, but if you go back to Avram Avinu, and we go with it, march with Tata Mitzvahs, and we've gone through everything. These are our secret weapons. That includes the mitzvahs that we have. And the mitzvahs themselves, the mitzvahs that have particular zgulas, particular features that drive fear in the enemy, filling for all boys and men that after Bar Mitzvah. They'll be afraid of you. Mezuzah, protection. Stoke, tatzel mamovis, protects from everything negative. Achdus and avas, Yisrael. Unity is the keli for blessing and also the keli for that unity that creates the ability to overcome any challenge. Chinuch, the education of our children, from the mouths of babes, even newborn children, establishes the strength, the strength of Teira, to completely eradicate, annihilate, eliminate the the enemy. And many, many other Tater Mitzvahs, all Tater Mitzvahs, but many others that have particular unique strengths, especially in times like this. These are secret weapons. When I say secret, it's not secret as no one can read about it, but it was only the Jewish people that embraced it, and that's why we're here. Not the Romans, and not the Babylonians, and not the Assyrians, and the Greeks, and the Persians, and the Egyptians, and the Ottoman, and the Spanish. And the list goes on. Because we use these secret weapons. And how you access it? Especially in a time of challenge, that's the whole point in the Maimur. Another Maimurim that talk about it, that Eitzir, is when you're challenged, you dig deeper. And the Melech is Mevazbiz. He completely, splur- completely uh, splurges and releases all these Eitzirs that were concealed until that point. And that's what you see. That's what pressure does. That's what challenge does. 
resistance. It brings out the deepest. And that's how we have to feel wherever we are in the world. Even if you're not you're directly under any attack, we're living in a world that we're one together and we have to mobilize ourselves and feel like when you wake up early and jump out of bed knowing that we're at war. Spiritual war for many of us. But it's, it's, but it's equal part of that war. Okay. We'll talk more details about it, especially the, the, the I don't want to like to use the word amazing, but it's uncanny how what we're reading now in the third is all related to all of this and gives us even more strength when you really understand the deeper narrative. How are we to understand the Rebbe's words that Israel is the safest place in the world? The Rebbe on many occasions said Israel is the safest place to be, quoting a verse, a land that God's eyes are upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. But how do we reconcile this with all the violence and war that's happening now? And what, furthermore, the Rebbe said, when he was asked in 1991, whether he still stands by that, there were new attacks, then God forbid. And the Rebbe said, absolutely, this doesn't change. This is Teda. Teda is Nitzchis. And more than ever, the Rebbe emphasized it. And he emphasized it during the Six-Day War in all situations. Even when bullets were whizzing over their heads in Teda Semes, I heard from people who were in there during the Six-Day War, the Rebbe told them to stay and they were hiding under the tables. So how do you reconcile that? So first of all, we have many questions. Why would God allow such a thing? And I've already explained that we don't have answers to all the questions. But the very world in which we live, as I said before, is full of danger. You can be anywhere in the world and be in danger. Comparatively speaking, Israel is the safest place because Hashem protects over it. But we do live in Golis, and there is concealment, and there are other mysteries that we'll never understand. And we say, God never slumbers or sleeps, the protector of Israel. What happened during the Holocaust? I don't have an answer. The verse stands, God was not sleeping, whatever reason he allowed it to happen, or there's no reason, or it's beyond our, our, our understanding. The point being is it doesn't take away from the truth. Just like someone would say, since God didn't do what I wanted, maybe there's no God, God forbid. That's not how it works. A truth is a truth whether we understand it or not. It's a given. If we understand it, great. If we don't, that doesn't change reality. Our commitment to good and our connection to God does not change if anything, yes, we can complain to God. We can yell out and say, why, why? Why are you doing evil to, you, to this nation, to this people, as Moshe Rabbeinu said? But ironically, it's the same God that we need in those difficult times more than ever. Because who are we going to turn to? Fickle human beings. Unreliable human beings who have self-interest in mind. As Holocaust survivors would say, who should I lose faith in? I lost faith in human beings. In God, I only have God left after what humans have done to other humans. The free will that God allows and the ultimate purpose must tell us that that is so important and valuable that God cannot always or chooses not to intervene. But that's another discussion. So my answer is, it's still the safest place. The verse stands and God will pr protect the Jews. And even though we've taken some blows and we've taken casualties and very painful ones, that have shattered lives and families, and we don't forget, we're not ignoring it, but our connection to the very purpose of life and life itself is stronger even than that pain. And that's ultimately what happens. 
We absorb the pain, we go through it, we cry, but our connection to what is eternal and lives on is stronger, I'll say it again, than the trauma and the grief and the pain of our suffering. And that's what ultimately prevails. And frankly, we have no other option. What, are we going to become victims? Secondary victims? That's not an option. We have to be the ones standing and avenge and ultimately do everything possible to protect the rest of our young and forge ahead and prevail and ultimately show the world, the dark world, who prevailed. So we need to continue fighting. It would be like soldiers giving up because some soldiers were killed. We give up. No, we don't give up. We continue fighting. And when you see the death of our very close ones, our own family, that only is an impetus, catalyst, and a springboard to fight even stronger. To redeem that loss. Okay. And we see also psychologically, when you have that attitude, that's what your children learn from. They see that you are in crisis, you see losses, they see difficulties. What did you do as a parent? You retreated? You got weaker? No, you got stronger. That doesn't mean you don't recognize the pain. But it's a tremendous lesson in life that we forge ahead and we move forward. And that's our best way of fighting that very tragedy that can so much overwhelm us and paralyze and even destroy our spirit. So it's also a lesson to everyone around us when we have that attitude. But it's not denial. It's not forgetting. It's not escaping. It's channeling that grief into positive force and thrust forward. So another person asks, Is this like the war against Amalek where we need to eradicate every last one of our enemies? The Torah clearly says that we must destroy Amalek, including all men, women, and children, and even their animals. So why is Israel being so careful to spare Gaza civilians and putting our holy soldiers at risk to protect civilians in Gaza? Just carpet bomb those filthy subhumans and then fly over Gaza and drop salt to clean the earth. King Saul made a huge mistake sparing Agog, and we are still suffering from this mistake. If Netanyahu makes the same mistake, he will suffer the same humiliating end that King Saul did. We all share that sentiment, and I'm not invalidating it. However, at the end of the day, it's not our anger. It's not in our emotions that drive us. Our emotions that drive us. We validate it. But we have, that's why we have a Torah. That's why we have a God. Because we don't have to know how to channel it. To suggest this is the war of Amalek, we don't have that authority to do so. I know this is getting into words when people are experiencing it emotionally. I understand we see this, and it looks worse than anything possible. And I'm not in any way minimizing and saying they're not worse than Amalek. But that's not what we've been commanded to do. To, To dictate and say, okay, let's kill every man, woman, and child because this is Amalek. And that's why you see after World War II, after what the Nazis did to six million of us. So yes, we did not forget. And we'll do everything possible to protect ourselves. But our revenge was, as been repeated more time and again, was building up our families, building our communities, building our homes, and ultimately building Eretz Yisrael. 
That's not because we're afraid to fight, because that's not, we're not warriors. We're not looking to fight. We're only looking to protect, so we can fight the main fight, which is to bring God to this world. Goodness, that's the irony here. That we have brought morality and goodness to the people, the very people who are attacking us. Where do they have rights from altogether? Whether it's Islam or Christianity or the rest of the world, civilization itself came from Judaism. That's why the Medr says that the nations of the world knew what kind of blessings the temple brought them. And at Israel and Jewish people, they would surround it with legions, protecting it instead of attacking it. But we know. And that's what's most important. So from a point of view of Pekuach Nefesh, absolutely do whatever is necessary to protect. And if you have to carpet bomb, you carpet bomb. But it has to be driven by that, not just because we decided that we're going to destroy it. From my point of view, if there are, I don't know if there are any civilians in Zaza that are innocent. When I say innocent, I'm not saying all of them did the murdering. But they sympathize, and they cultivate it. It's a breeding ground. Parents, schools. So in some way, they're complicit. But, but it, should there be some that are not, that actually oppose? And there are those. You hear voices, very rare, but you hear voices. You hear the son of the Hamas, one of the Hamas founders. You hear his voice. So that we're not going to say, okay, no, anyone that chooses the path of Torah, the path of kindness, the path of law, we're willing to be completely at peace with. So that's why I'm careful not to just categorize Amalek, even though that would be the temptation to just say, oh, kill them all. But remember, it's not because of our compassion or our afraid of public opinion. It's doing what is right. And by all means, again, Eradication, not letting something like this happen. Again, destroying every, every last missile, every last post or whatever you want to call it, in Gaza, under Gaza, and so on, by all means. Okay. Should we be concerned that our enemies are setting a trap for us? Someone else writes, I'm concerned that as soon as Israel attacks Hamas and Hezbollah, 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 close by on her borders, these larger enemies will be drawn into a strategic motive to switch then and attack Israel together. The Islamic sect battles ongoing nearby between Shia and Sunni, Shia and Sunni, and throughout the Middle East are hardened and desperate warriors. All these forces would then come down on Israel as a convenient unit, neither for the opposing and warring Islamic sects. sects. Many fighters on both sides are close by in Syria already and would amass together to fight Israel on many fronts. A planned trap for Israel and her allies? Well, I don't have this concern. First of all, let's start with Derech HaTeva. The Derech HaTeva, if you call it Derech HaTeva, Israel was attacked by many countries from every direction. Everyone thought they had no chance. Entire armies and both in the Yom Kippur War and before that in the Six-Day War, Israel prevailed. Six-Day War was an open miracles. The Yom Kippur War took a little more time, but it was also miracles. So on a military level, Israel is a keli, is a channel for God's blessing. But then we see God's hand time and again. Not that we're relying only on that. God blessed his Jewish people with the wisdom to build the proper military. So of course we don't want that to happen. But, and are we concerned? Time of war, you're always concerned. That's why we pray. 
and we do everything naturally possible to protect ourselves. But I would not let that be the driving force. Because what's the alternative then? Is to retreat? To surrender, God forbid? That will make it better. You have to remember, especially these enemies, they respond to strength and to fear. I know people don't like those words. But I've heard this from quite a few people that come from that world, the Arab-Muslim world. Strength is what they respect. Fear. So therefore, I think we need to, on the contrary, strength will bring peace. Peace. You want to stop these attacks? That's how you do it, through strength and forging ahead and absolutely not giving one inch. I understand in the Western world there's the concept, you compromise a little, the other one compromises, and everyone's happy. This is not a business transaction. You're dealing with people who are extremists. Even if not everyone's extremists, but it's extremist ideology. And they definitely dominate. And they respond to strength. Weakness has always been the source of all our problems. Had Israel done what it had to do in the Six-Day War, now is not a time to say things in any negative way. We wouldn't have these issues altogether. I was in Israel in 1971. Okay? It was only four years after the Six-Day War. I was 14 years old. Not only did I go everywhere, I was not told by anybody, be careful at night, here, there. I went to Hebron, I went to Shechem, I went to Sharshchem, the Damascus Gate. I went with Arab buses and Arab taxis. There was none issue. And they hated Jews, I'm sure, as much as they do today. But they knew they had lost. And they behaved like that. The Germans had to unconditional surrender. The Japanese, unconditional surrender. And today they are allies with the United States and with Israel. Explain that. That's only 70, 80 years ago. People who hated us were ready to destroy and annihilate us entirely. Are there individual haters? I'm sure there are. So strength is what talks, and that's what you need to understand in time of war. Time of peace is another story. If someone you have proven to be a peaceful neighbor, then you can talk to them a whole different story. But if you don't, then we have Simon Shechavtez that the Rebbe so emphatically emphasized time and again. You have an enemy on your border. It's a whole set of rules change completely, even if they come to talk to you. Let's talk about Kashvetavan. Commerce will trade grain. You have to mobilize on Shabbos because you're dealing with a sworn enemy. And all you have to do is read the constitution of Hamas. And you know what a sworn enemy is. And don't let anyone deceive you. Oh, that's just a paper. That's not a paper. That's the constitution. It's like the constitution of the United States for them. From river to sea, every Jew... Not, not, not the man for two states, only one state, a Palestinian state, a Muslim state, and it's religious-driven, So, which only goes further into the topic, it makes it even more complex. <clears throat> so I wouldn't be concerned. We do have, what we have to do, we have to be serious, we have to be committed, we have to be firm, but strength will prevail. Okay. Now I want to move over to empowering Torah portions. As I mentioned, one of the allies, maybe our biggest ally in history, has been not just our weapons. And not even, I mean, weapons compared to this is pales in comparison. Has been the Torah. We hold on to the Torah. Simcha's Torah, dancing, holding the Torah. It's exactly when we were attacked. 
Torah Nitzchi is the eternal Torah, Torah Chaim, Torah of life. That's when so many people were killed, when we were dancing with the Torah of life. So we understand the, the, the irony of that. But yet, so the fact that these events have taken place in such a time, on one hand, seems even more shocking, but on the other hand, it's actually quite empowering. Because it's when we looked into the Torah is where we found our answers. Why was Avram Avinu told, as I discussed last week, by the Brisbane Absarim, that his children, his descendants, will be a land not their own and be oppressed for 400 years, and then they will come out with great treasures? Hashem just wanted to give him a bad, uh, bad news. Because we need to know the Torah is here to be a blueprint for life, and a blueprint for life covers all of life. The ups and downs, the twists and turns, the bright times and the dark times. But no, the end, the end is a good one. And there will be Mashiach, and there will be Geula. This is the Torah that the Jews held on to throughout history. So when all else failed, and they had nothing to hold on to, they had this. They had the vision, God's vision, that began with Breshis Baralakimsa Shemaim Vasaritz. And as Rashi says, that that's the vision that the Jews, the Jews will be given the Holy Land, the Promised Land. And the vision that Hashem shares through the Torah is God's vision, God's blueprint. And yes, there are very many dark moments. There's the Hastarasta point that the Torah talks about, where Hashem says his face will be covered, the difficult times. Bizben Absarim. The trembling and the fears that Avram faced because he saw what his children would have to go through. But the end of the story is a happy one. This is history. So we look in these parshas in this time period, you actually can find tremendous strength. And this is what creates somewhat of an oasis, like a cocoon that insulates us a bit. Not escapism. It's like the Tevas Neyach, which we'll talk about in a moment that protects us, the words of Torah and Tefillah, that protect us from the f- raging floodwaters, from the media, from the wars, from the sheer pain you see, you hear, or see some of these gruesome and ghastly images. I mean, God Almighty, no human being, people, most seasoned people break down in tears, throw up, cannot deal with it. But we have a resource even stronger than all that grief and all that discussed, and that is the Torah. So let's review just the trajectory from October 7th till today. And again, I don't like to use the word amazed or because of these times, but it is amazing to see how we have the whole story written out and also the end of the story. So let's do that. Let's start with Simchas Torah itself. Everybody remembers where they were October 7th. In Eretz Yisrael, it was Shmini Atzeres and Simchas day one day. Chutz Laretz, it was the morning of Shmini Atzeres, which would then lead into Simchas Hamas, like Haman, similar words, except with one different. Hamas, H-A-M-A-N or H-A-M-A-S, made, did the same thing, made a grave mistake, they chose the wrong day. Yes, they did damage, but they chose a day. Haman thought other was perfect. Put him, the lots, 
fell out on the day of Zion Odin. The Yom HaPetira, the passing of Moshe. It's a bad omen for the Jews. The great Moses passed away. Little did he know, it was also his birthday. Hamas chose Simchas They were the Jews are either synagogues, their guard is down, they're distracted. Little did they know that Simchas is our celebration of the Jewish indestructibility and invincibility. Why do we dance on Simchas Because of Yom Kippur. Why would we celebrate Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year? Because of the Luchashniyas that we gain, Salachti Kidvarecha, forgiveness and hope. That even after the tablets were broken, broken, and our hearts were broken, and our spirits were broken due to the Chet Egel, 40, 39, 40 days after the Batan Teda. So 80 days later, 120 days from Matan Teda, Moshe praying, not taking no for an answer, breaks down all the doors and gains forgiveness, the hope of Yom Kippur that we are going to prevail. Even after betrayal, even after one of the most terrible sins of betrayal, of adultery, of infidelity, a false god, a golden calf, tablets are broken. As we read Asim Chisteira, Rashi commentary and the last words that Moshe is passing, yes, it's sad, the passing. But he broke the tablets and God said, thank you for breaking them because through breaking the tablets, he demonstrated the Jewish invincibility that nothing can break us, that even in the breaks we can find something so complete. That's when you know something is eternal. If it hasn't been challenged, how do you know? But when it's been broken and it can still survive, then you know it's invincible. That's Simchas That's why we dance. Simchas even more than Matan Tor, even by Shavuos. Because we're dancing for the Luchas the luchas that come after the breaking. So we've been broken here. We've been hurt terribly. But what does Simchas teach us? Invincibility, my friends. And indeed, as a result of what's happened, the attack, we've come together like never before. We will continue to do so, physically, spiritually, financially, in every possible way to wage this war. And we will demonstrate, just like Purim, who prevails? So that's the first lesson from Simchas Teir itself, the day. So let's go through the trajectory of the events since then. So the question, how do we store all the amazing energy of the Tishrei holidays and make it last for the rest of the year? I don't know if that question was written before the attacks or after, but regardless, like never before Simchas Teir has the lesson, because Simchas Teir is the conclusion of the whole holiday season. El and Rosh Hashanah and, Yom, and this 10 days of Tshuva and Yom Kippur and the four days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot and all the seven days of Sukkot and then concluding with Heshayin Rabbah and then Shemini Atzeres, Simchas And Simchas channels it all into this victory, this indestructibility. That's how we do it. And so on writes, the Torah set, ends by saying, never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moshe Rabbeinu who knew God face to face. Can Rabbi Jacobson please explain this? During Matan Teda, Moshe asked Hashem to please see his face and Hashem replied, nobody sees my face and lives. So I can only show you my back. But the ending 
But the ending verses of the Torah state that they know each other face to face. So which is it? Or did something change in their relationship 40 years after Matan Torah and how Hashem was able to show His face? So different explanations given is the bottom line is, as the Rebbe explains, Panim Yofis explains similarly, that when you read, read like this, you will see my back and my face, but my face by not, you will see by by not looking. And in the Sneh, by the Sneh, Hashem says, see my face. At the end of the day, it's Tzar that allows us to see God's face. In joy, you don't always see the face. You see the back, you see Giluyim. It's the Tzomel Nafshi. And then we say, Halavai, Kein Bachedish Chazesicha. That Halavai Bachedish, we should see what we see when we're thirsty. So the Ponim Ponim was seen by, not by Matan quite, as it was by Yom Kippur. And that's why Moshe's face shined, and he had to cover it. So the tzaras the tzaras we're seeing now are going to bring out the deeper level of a face like we've never seen before. Moshe Rabbeinu had many great accomplishments, someone else writes. He defeated Pare and helped us escape slavery in Egypt. He got the Torah from Hashem and taught it to us. He helped us survive 40 years in the desert and many more great things. But Rashi ends his commentary on the Torah saying Moshe's greatest accomplishment was breaking the luchas. All on Simcha's Torah we're reading all of this. The day of the attack in Eretz Yisrael. We know the Rebbe held Rashi in very high regard and gave many sikhs explaining Rashi's commentary. Did the Rebbe ever explain why Rashi would end his commentary talking about something negative that happened after the golden calf instead of ending on a more positive note? Absolutely. Simcha's Torah, Tov Shemem Zayin. One of the greatest sikhs classics. The Rebbe crying, sobbing. I remember it vividly. Writing down the Hanukkah afterwards was very hard to write. And he asked this question, why would, Moshe, why would Rashi end with that? And he said, because this was the greatest feat of Moshe more than all others. Yitzhiya Smitzayim, excellent. Kriya Siamsu, Matan Teda. But where do you see the greatness of a leader? When the Jews had sinned. And what did Moshe do? He broke the tablets, not because he was angry. He tore up the Ksuba, the marriage contract, as Rashi says in Kisisa. Because then he could say to Hashem, yes, they heard they heard, do not have false gods, other gods. But they didn't sign the contract. They didn't accept. The luchas were not given to them yet because Moshe was on the mountain with them. He broke the tablets. He broke them to make that argument. He sacrificed the very high, the highest level of the tablets, even higher than any Sefer Teirah. Erase my name from the Sefer, from your Sefer Achayim, if you don't forgive them. So it brought out the indestructibility, all the same message. And then we begin in Simcha's Teda reading Sefer Bereshis, the beginning of the Teda. The end of the Teda ends with Allah at the beginning of the Teda with Abayz, Lev, the heart, the Jewish people as one, like never before. And what do we read in Bereshis? The first Rashi, Bereshis, Baralikim, Shemayim, Vesa'oris, or the Rashi in the first, on the first verse, that the Goyim will say, Listimatim. Why the Abish to start with Bereshis? Why didn't he start with Mitzvahs? The Mitzvah of Kiddush Levona. Tayr is a book of Mitzvahs. Because Hashem anticipated. And Rashi writes this a thousand years ago from Medrash, that's almost two thousand years ago. 
that the Goyim will say, list them at them, you're thieves. That's exactly what they're saying, you're occupiers. Colonizing, colonialization of our land. So Hashem says, you tell them, I created the world. And I gave that world, I, I give the land to whom I wish. I gave it to the nations and I took from them one piece and gave it to my people, the Jewish people. Is, is it important to note that Rashi's first comment on the Torah says, ask someone, says the Torah begins with the beginning, God created the heaven and earth in order to let us know that one day the Goyim will say, Israel is not your land, you stole it and we can reply, it's all God's land and he gave it to us so you need to please be quiet. Absolutely. And when do we read it? On Simcha's Torah, when the attack happened. And the shop is afterwards. The full Parsha. And it says in Parsha Bereshis right away that was the earth. Chaos. What Hamas has done created chaos. And darkness covers existence. But there's the Spirit of God that's hovering. And then, the mitzvah, we have to bring light that's stronger than that darkness. It says in Pasha Bereshit that Hashem created light, but it doesn't say He created darkness, someone else writes. He probably left the job of creating darkness to the Hamas terrorists. Maybe. But our job is to bring light that's more powerful than darkness. So there you see in Bereshit. So the story that is happening on the ground playing itself out in the Torah. Now, we didn't see it in the Torah before because hopefully it never should have happened the way it happened. We, well, I should say, we hoped it never would happen, but it did. And therefore, we go from Parsha Breshis to Neach, and I could say there's more lessons. I'm just giving you some highlights. We then go on to Neach, Parsha Neach. And Neach right away, Chamas. pronounce Hamas. Bloodshed, murder, crime, violence. Rashi brings one interpretation, the Medrash brings them all. And then repeats it again, filled with Hamas, Hamas. And therefore we need to bring the Mabel, to cleanse the earth. What does the Torah mean in Pashanech when it says the earth was filled with Hamas? And after it says Hashem wanted to destroy the world, to destroy the evil of the world. Not the world, period. That's why Noyach and his family were preserved. To rebuild the world. Sometimes that's what needs to be done. We prefer it didn't have to happen. That's why the Mabel didn't come down immediately. It took time. So they should have chance, a chance to do tshuva, as Rashi says. Is this something we should worry about? That the world will be destroyed? Or will Hashem only destroy Hamas and let us be safe? Absolutely. To let us be safe. That's why we have a teva. Physical teva. But as the Baal says, Teva means the letters, the words, I should say, the Tevas of Teva and Tefillah that protect us from the raging floodwaters that are destroying Hamas. So just a follow-up question. I'm just doing a few questions that have come in in this flow as we go through living with the times, as the Alter Rebbe says, and it couldn't be more relevant than the times now. When we read from Pasha Sneach and Shul, every time the Balkadah said Hamas, everyone started hooting and hollering and making noise like we do when Haman's name is read during the Megillah. 
Our rabbi got upset and asked us to please stop. But why should our rabbi object after what Hamas did to us? Their name should be blotted out just like Haman. Okay, I'm not going to get in between you and your rabbi. I understand the sentiment and appreciate it. You know, it happened, it happened. But I'm just reading it without much commentary from my end. And can Rabbi Jacobson please explain the verse in Isaiah 60, 18, where it says, Hamas will never be heard from again in your land. What was the original context of the verse and how can we apply it today? I think it's a rhetorical question. The destruction of Hamas, of, of crime, of violence, of bloodshed. It's exactly what we should be doing. Violence should no longer be heard in your land. And then in Yale, Dalit, Yutes, and Chof, Mitzrayim l'shmometiyah, ve'edem l'midbar shmometiyah, mechamas b'nei Yehuda, she'shofchu dom noki ba'artsam. That these lands will become desolate and desert waste because of the violence done to the children of Judah. They shed innocent blood in their land. I mean, how more prescient. But v'yehuda la'elam teshev, v'yushalayim la'devader, but Judah, shall remain forever in Jerusalem throughout all generations, exactly as it was in the past. And then from Neyach we go to Lech Lecha. As we discussed, that Lech Lecha begins the Rebbe Rashab, the birth of Avram, the end of Neyach. Neyach is Kalamutna, because you have to deal with this darkness, and this crime, this violence. But the end of Neyach is already getting happier because Avram is born. Avram brings light. And then Parsha Lech Lecha is more upbeat, because now we're talking about Avram, the chosen of Avram Avinu. Go. And where is he going? From southeastern Iraq to Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Canaan at the time. And walk around, walk there to lengthen, to the width. And wherever you go, this will be the land that I'm giving you. The promised land. What Rashi said in the beginning of Bereshis, now it comes true. God's promising the land. How more timely could it be? Last week's parsha that we read yesterday. Lech Lecha. Mamash about literally the promised land. Just open up the Bible. The Bible, which is the base of the best-selling book in history and continues to be, the basis of Christianity, the basis of Islam, it's right there. I don't want to dismiss the pain that we're going through. I'm not dismissing the deaths. But the Torah is talking about strength. Tremendous strength you get from all of this. Like literally, Magdim Lamaka, anticipating, preempting the questions and having all the answers. And then we continue, and this I already discussed last week, so I'm not going to go into detail. The Brisbane Absodim. The covenant. Where Avram says, but what will be? I don't have any children. God presses him with children says, I'll bless you with, with a child. And the child, your children, your descendants will be like the stars in heaven. And they will inherit this land. And then God shows him the darkness, where it talks about the sun setting and the darkness and the dread that fell over him. He'd see the empires to come, including the Ishmaelite empire. His own son, Yishmael, his descendants would ultimately bring darkness, would fight wars. All this was shown to Avraham Avinu. 
The Zoya talks about these wars in Parsha, send the Parsha Ve'era and Parsha Balak. The Balaturim at the end of Chayasara talks about it. There are many Midrashim that talk about these wars. And Avram knew there would be wars. But Hashem tells him, but the end, like with Mitzrayim, your children, the children of Israel will prevail. I mean, how much more relevant could it be to our times and these chapters? So I can't speak for anyone, but I can tell you, I gain and glean tremendous strength from it. Still pray that we should not have any casualties and still pray for the shattered families and homes of what has happened. When you talk about deep, dark dread, we just went through it. But there's a story, and we know that we will prevail, and it's critical that we have that strength to march forward, to forge ahead. In Pasha Lech Lech Hashem says to Avram, I will bless anyone who blesses you. Therefore, I would like to proclaim, someone writes, the following blessing to Avram Avinu. May your descendants who are hostages in Gaza be freed and safely returned to their families. May there be peace and prosperity in Israel. May your descendants that are having difficulties, having children, just like your wife Sarah, be blessed with many healthy children. And may one of your Jewish descendants win the grand jackpot of the Powerball lottery. Okay. For a smile to my face in these uh, solemn moments, times. I thought the end was going to be Gula Amitiz Vashlema. So I'll add that. So Vavorchim Averechachacha. Those that bless you shall be blessed. What better message to the world today? And many do appreciate it, many don't. I mentioned before. Blessing to Jews is a blessing for the world. This is the time that the world can rise and say, these are the Jewish people. God says they are a blessed people. And this week's chapters. And we commend those and salute those that are embracing that message. But we need more. We need to define what is good and what is evil. What is Hamas and what is Tev. So again in this week's Pasha. By the Brisbane Absarim. So someone asks, how does cutting a cow in half and walking through the parts guarantee a transfer of land to the Jewish people? When I bought my house, I had to sign many documents, but the real estate agent didn't make me and the seller walk through the parts of a dead cow. I hope I didn't miss out on an opportunity to do this ritual. Okay, nice tongue-in-cheek, especially when it's anonymous. I'm reading it exactly as it was written. Well, first of all, that was the custom of real krisis bris that was meant a krisis bris. They actually used an object, or in this case an animal, and that was how they made a real formal commitment. Different times, different ways of commitment today. It's contracts and so on. But on a deeper level, it was a real crisis bris that took real life, connected to real life. And therefore it has an eternal impact till this very day. So as you see in the Parsha where it talks about taking an animal. It's like bringing an offering. Yes, you can bring an offering through, through charity, through a contract. But when you bring an animal, like the Ramban says, you're envisioning that what happened to the animal is happening to you. So Christus is the same thing, that you're really two parts of one reality. And we become now bound in a covenant forever and ever. Circumcision is Christus Bris, B'psarchem, like we read the end of Lech Lecha, in your flesh. Not just a commitment with words or with actions. It's engraved and etched in your flesh itself. 
that makes the commitment absolutely real and permanent. Okay. What is the significance of Abraham changing his name to Abram? Should we emulate him and also add a letter to make a slight ver- make and make a slight variations to our names, or does this require a divine command from God to do? Well, what also came right then after Brisbane Absodim, Avram, as, as the Pesach says, and Chassidus explains in detail, Avram, he was a very great, Avram means like a father, an exalted father. Avraham, the hey is Av Hamoin Goyim. You're now a father of nations. I've just shown you the nations that would come from you. The nation of Yishmal, the nation of Rome, Western world, Edom, Esau, the nation, of course, of Israel. And all the nations would come from you. So you're the father of all nations. What better message today? We can call upon nations. Live up to your great-grandfather Abraham and his legacy of Zdaka Mishpat. Kindness, charity, justice, virtue, love, compassion. So the name itself was that would, that would forge a path, a pioneering path of all civilization and all the values and standards that we cherish so much that have just recently become institutionalized just in a few hundred years. Last few hundred years, but for the years, thousands of years, no. Terror very often prevailed. And even if we had benevolent despot or benevolent leader, that was uh, an exception or it was we were lucky. Today we live in a very different world, all because of the pioneering Avraham, Avamengoyim. It boggles my mind when I say to myself, I say, Muslims, you consider yourself a grandchildren of Abraham. Look how he's behaved. Love, compassion. Even to people that he didn't agree with. People that were infidels. He prayed for them. Saddam, which we'll talk about in a moment. Whether we should change our name, that's a God thing. And you don't change names without good reason. And usually it's, it's usually as a result of illness where you need extra names. So I would stay away from that. Is it a good idea not to give a bristar children at eight days old, but let them wait until they're 99 years old? to do it so they can be Zeich Hashem himself visiting them and taking it to them. No. <laughs> I know it's a tongue-in-cheek question. It's eight days. Yitzchak was circumcised to eight days. Avram was an exception. It was the first time. That was his first uh, commitment in that sense. And yes, he was a tzaddik. As the tzemach tzaddik told the Rebbe Rashab, that's why he deserved to be God to be revealed. Once Avram broke through, when we get circumcised at eight days, we too merit through Avram, our great-grandfather, our ancestor, patriarch, to also see godliness. But we have to work for it. And we do it through our chesed, through our kindness. And this leads us from Lech Lecha to Vayera. What do we find in Vayera? Hashem reveals himself to Avram. Yes, ostensibly to healing, to heal him after the bris. And Avram shows his chesed because that he shows to whom? To nomads, to Arabs. Yes. Wandering. And then comes the rest of the parsha that talks about, first of all, Yitzchak being born. 
as promised in, in the Vlech Lecha. And the destruction of Zdoim and Avram praying for them. And then the banishment of Yishmael and Hagar. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. You'll see what kind of power that brings us. So Yishmael was born at the end of Lech Lecha. Yishmael. God listened. Avram could not have a child with Sarah, so she advised, use my maidservant, Hagar, let her, and she gave birth to Yishmael. Then we have the birth of Yitzchak. So there you have right there two nations, the origins, the ancestors of these nations. Even if you can't identify exactly individuals, but generally that region of the Yishmaelat region is the children of Yishmael. Some argue Palestinians are completely not that, possibly, especially after Sancherev confused the whole world and Mabilbul. But overall, you can see the general structure, just like Esav, the grandfather of, of Remi, Edom. So you have Yishmael, now you have Yitzchak, the son of Avram and Sarah. And then Sarah says and sees Yishmael doing things that are having a bad effect on Yitzchak. So she tells Avram, send him away. Send Yishmael away with Hagar. Avram doesn't want to. God tells him, yes, send him away. What's the story here? First of all, what was he doing? And it was Sarah that first encouraged that Yishmael, the birth of Yishmael through Hagar. And let's just add a little more. At the end of Lech Lecha, it says, what kind of person was Yishmael? Pera Adam, a wild man. His hand is in everything and everyone is in him. Like a person without boundaries, basically. Okay, let me correct myself. So what's the story here? So Chassidus tells us. It's all the story of what would come in the future. And Sarah saw it, and then Avram recognized it as well. Both are children of Avram, chesed. Avram is love. But love without boundaries can be destructive. Too much love if it can flood the fields, too much water. It needs raindrops to be absorbed. Yishmael was very passionate. He had the passion and faith of his father Avram, but he didn't have proper boundaries. Pera Adam, wild. Didn't have boundaries. Yitzchok is a man of boundaries. Gvura, to balance out chesed. So Avram's chesed was holy chesed, was driven by humility. Yitzchok's chesed was driven by arrogance. Because that's what happens. You can be very passionate and you can be very giving. But if it's ultimately you and you're not, it's not tempered and seasoned with gvura, then it can become wild and destructive. And that's what Sarah saw. There are different explanations that you see him being behaving sexually inappropriate or he was doing other things that were corrupting Yitzchak. Those are already the manifestations of it. But the bottom line is that boundary was not there. And that's why she said, who will inherit Avram will be Yitzchak. Because Yitzchak is the balance. So really the battle between Yishmael and Yitzchak essentially and his banishment was a battle of how you 
bring God into this world? Do you do it with aggression and violence? All in the name of chesed, all in the name of bringing God, but without boundaries, or you do it with pleasantness. A chesed that is humble, a chesed that is channeled, that is disciplined through inspiration. Ironically, it was Sarah that, as I said, that advised Avram to give birth to, 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 to have a child with Hagar, and the birth of Israel. And she was the one that banished him. The banishment actually was a blessing for him. Because sometimes what you need to do to discipline someone is to show them and banish them from the land or from the home. Now, the land where Israel was given to the Jewish people, that's very clear. That's what the Bible says. But Yeshua, then it continues Hashem says to Avram, I know he's your son, and he too will be a great nation. And that's what he repeats again, it'll be a great nation. The Arabi- Arabian countries, and later that would become Muslim, is the Muslim countries, are quite extensive. It's all part of the blessing that God gave to Abraham for his son Yishmael. Israel is a relatively very small little place. But in Avram's home, actually banishing Yishmael was a discipline that was necessary. And God protected them when they prayed and Hagar prayed. But the pieces, the characters have been put in place of the confrontation. So really the deepest battle, and I'm not, again not talking about the, the atrocities that were perpetrated on Simchus Torah on, on October 7th, I'm talking about the general story behind the story, is a confrontation. Yeah, children of Abraham, finding a balance of how to bring God into this world. And that's what the Jewish people are charged with. And they received the Torah. The children of Yishmael were offered the Torah, but it was also not, it was too, ba- too disciplined for them. They did not want to follow some of the laws. They were lacking the discipline of the Gvura of Yitzchak. So they rejected it, but they were given, offered the Torah because one day they would embrace it. And the end of the story is they will embrace it in peace. But there are times that you need to go to war when people are extreme. Not because you want to go to war. And that's what Sarah recognized. By sending him away, it was actually creating the proper fertile ground that Yitzchak would grow up and create a balanced approach and harmony between the passion of God and the material world and how to integrate the two in a peaceful way. And that would ultimately teach Yishmael as well. Had Sarah not done that out of compassion, Yishmael would have suffered at his own hands because he was a wild man. He didn't have that discipline. And then to the story, next week's chapter, Chayesara, we, we read that he actually did tshuva. All because of Sarah's sending him away, he ultimately did learn individually. His grandchildren, his descendants today, still need to learn it. At least many of them do. So again, another chapter that talks about the inner story. So actually, it's the events today that clarified something for me. I always wondered, why did Sarah send him away? Why couldn't they find a way to work together? But that's sometimes what you need. You need the gvura in a, in a holy way to discipline and ultimately nurture someone to be able to behave chesed of Avram in a holy way, not in an arrogant way. So what we find from all of this is an inside story Someone asks, is the terrorist attack in Israel revenged by the descendants of Ishmael because Sarah and Avram kicked out Hagar and Ishmael and forced them to walk across the desert with no food and water? Maybe that's what they think. But the truth is it was a blessing for them. And as a matter of fact, 
when God does provide water for Yishmael, for this little child Yishmael and Hagar, or child, he was suffering, I don't know how little he was. I think he was already older, I'm not sure the age exactly. So Rashi brings there, even though they would deprive, Yishmael's children of Yishmael would deprive water from the Jews when they suffered at the Babylonians' hands, nevertheless God protected them. Since Avram begged Hashem not to destroy the evil city of Zdom, should we emulate Avram by protesting the Israeli army destroying the evil city of Gaza and beg Hashem to save Gaza? No. Hashem, Avram prayed for Zdom not because if Avram was a danger, pikuach nefesh, no. He prayed either because there were tzaddikim there and their crimes. So no, that's not what we learn from Avram. The opposite. May the Grandchildren of Yishmael learn from Avram that you pray for infidels and don't destroy them. Not, we're not destroying a cruel city of Yishmael, we're destroying a city that attacked us to protect our own innocent men, women, and children. And finally, if the Hebrew word for peace is shalom and the Arabic word for peace is salam, salam, and both words sound very similar, would it make logical sense to say both languages probably evolved from the same region? And therefore, both Israel and the Arabs have valid historical claims to the land, and they should both share the land and try to peacefully coexist together. Well, yes, that they share shalom means they're both children of Avram, and they will ultimately make peace. But God said, how you make peace? Peace is through boundaries, through strength. Israel has its homeland, and the Arab Muslims have theirs. No, it's not about conflating and confusing the two. The exact opposite. But this is the work we have, and that's ultimately what I want to conclude with is our work. What is victory? And I want to talk about this in the next program more at length. We just literally ran out of time. What is true victory? Not just to eliminate our enemies. Not just to protect the women, women and children, which of course takes priority, life and death. Our victory is the victory of Avram. That light will prevail over darkness. That love will prevail over hatred. And life will prevail over death. And that the Muslims will benefit from that. And the Christians. And all the human beings on this planet. Every, eight billion, every one of the 8 billion people. But to do that, sometimes you have to eradicate those forces that are like a cancer. That are fighting it with every possible way. And especially convinced that they are representing God and the religious voice. Our victory is a victory of light, is that all the nations in that area will say once and for all, no more, we're no longer looking to kill you. Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people, it says so in the Bible. We have our land that God gave us. We're looking to live in peace. Is this a dream? Is it naive? It's biblical. And that's what we hold on to. That's our victory. Our victory was never to become like our enemies and never just to be defined as fighting our enemies. We're not anti-anti-Semites. We are anti-anti-Semites, but that's not what defines us. What defines us is what we're for. We're for bringing light, love, godliness into this world. The way Avram Avinu fought. And we will prevail. As I said, there's so much more to talk about, but this gives a picture and this tremendous empowerment from these parshas. I went through all the parshas till Vayera, and we'll continue. The story's not over. There's more interesting and powerful, fascinating details as, we, as the story develops and helps us all grow 
and direction and guidance with the, with the end in mind of the Geula Hamitis Vashlema. This has been my life because it is applied. Episode 469, we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Please use the forum at chassidusapply.com to ask any questions, comments, feedback, as well as archives of all the previous programs. And may our learning and our discussions and our light dispel all the darkness and finally prevail, bringing Geula personal and global redemption and peace to the world. Be well, and may Hashem protect all our brothers and sisters, men, women, and children in the promised land, especially the Tzahal on the front lines. Amen. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.